and I feel really privileged to actually look at you and and also I've been feeling very privileged to to sit with you both one-on-one as a group I really as I know others have said it but there is an extraordinary transmission that you're giving us <laughs> um, that you have given us during this retreat uh, it's been like looking into the eyes of the world you are the eyes of the world you may imagine that you're something else but when you're not imagining you're something else it's hard to find any limits isn't it? Anyway, this is the last night of the first half of your retreat. (laughs) Really, the second half of the retreat begins as the activities of your daily life, in a sense, come pouring back into awareness. Your awareness remains the same follows you around and all these intense activities tend to come as you may have gotten a taste of when you started talking. Feel the speed, the arousing energy, intensity. You may have thought it was wild while you were sitting. (laughs) It's even wilder when you start talking. You notice as the physical energy intensifies a little bit, the, the emotional contact, how the, the, I'm thinking of Thich Nhat Hanh right now, how the frog nature begins to emerge again, that urge to lift out of this instant. He says, he says when you try to put the frog on the center of a plate, it jumps off in just a few seconds. You put it back again and it again jumps off. And he says, you have so many plans. There's something you want to become, therefore you always want to make a leap, a leap forward. Have you recognized that today? He says it's difficult to keep the frog still on the center of the plate. He says that you and I have Buddha nature, and this is the good news, but you and I also have frog nature. (laughs) That's why the first attainment of the practice, froglessness is its name. I had a feeling this talk was going to be like this. <laughs> We're surprised that our minds jump around and don't do what we tell them to do. And I, I think it's a little bit It's based on an erroneous view. It's based on the, or some kind of misunderstanding. Basically, what we experience here as we sit, as we live, as we, whatever happens after we begin to speak, is really the result of, of what we've practiced in our life. Some say that we have, it's as though we have this stream of consciousness. Have you noticed it, the stream of consciousness? And up comes all this stuff. And that most of it, if we could, would probably testify as a repeat from the day before, earlier in our life. And we wonder, and we're a little incensed and shocked, that our mind just continually races forward. We shouldn't be shocked. And just as a way of perhaps bringing a little more understanding and kindness, and I actually want to do a little reflecting tonight on what's (laughs) happened, where we're going, what we're doing. Just for a moment, imagine that this this retreat uh, is just beginning. We'll call it a, a new retreat. And basically, for this retreat, you'll be given all new instruction. You've just arrived this evening. You have the anticipation of just arriving, kind of looking forward to your time. And then the teacher, or whoever is leading the retreat, walks into the room and says, 
This is your instruction for the retreat. Think all day. <laughs> Distract yourself any way you can, at any cost. Gratify every desire that arises. <laughs> Feed the wanting mind. Go as fast as you can. <laughs> the busier you are, the better you'll be. <laughs> and if necessary, get a little badge that says, I'm really busy. <laughs> Cling to the impermanent. <laughs> Hold on tight. <laughs> Try to control your experience. <laughs> Who are we laughing at? <laughs> well, if you don't think it's you, at least you'll recognize something of what I'm talking about in this uh, passage from, a, from an article about this new rave going around the world right now, which is human beings trying to avoid impermanence by taking human growth hormone. We have, we have uh, Dr. Ronald Klatz who says, we're not about growing old gracefully. We're about never growing old. Then we have Carrie Simino, 37, a private investor in Manhattan who's been taking the growth hormone for a year. He says, my health and my quality of life are major issues for me. Speaking by cellular phone during a workout at the Reebok Sports Club. Speaking by phone during his workout at the Reebok Sports Club on the Upper West Side, he said, I used to be the hedonistic yuppie of the 80s <laughs> who was only concerned with his Mercedes-Benz. Now I'm a hedonistic yuppie of the 90s who is only concerned about his health and well-being and who will do anything for it. So isn't it a bit crazy that we think that when we sit down here, our mind is not going to think all day, want to feed the wanting mind, want to prevent change from occurring, wanting to move fast. This is what we have practiced. This is what we're trained in. And it's really important to, at least it has been for me, to reflect on the reality of, of, of having this mental activity and the, the actions that follow it, um, that it's, it's so conditioned. It's basically what I was taught to do. It's what every message that's given in our, our world, for the most part, at least the dominant message. But more importantly, it's not because any of us are bad people. Even though when we see this movement of our minds, we tend to be very hard on ourselves when our desires are frustrated. Our pride tends to be wounded. Somehow we think this should make us happy. So inherent in this is a search for happiness, a search in this mad dash. In whatever we're dashing toward, there's a search for something that will give us relief. Forrest Gump put it this way. He said, some people like me are born idiots, but many more become stupider as they go along. <laughs> we get stupider as we go along. It doesn't mean we're bad. We just get ignorant. We become ignorant. We don't know. And our perception becomes clouded by the the view that there is something in this world 
some experience or place or thing or person or house or football game. I, I noticed my own mind today. We have a football game coming up Sunday. <laughs> I was, it was, there was requ a request that I mention the 49ers tonight. <laughs> but if you're a football fan, as I am, I admit it, I grew up with football in my life and I tend to enjoy the games and I tend to, like many people, that with something that I look forward to, in some way become slightly hypnotized by the, the thought that when that game occurs, I'm going to be happier. <laughs> that that's going to do it for me. And so, subtly, just in the same way that we wait that last 20 minutes of the sitting for the bell to ring, subtly there is this tension, this slight toppling forward, this slight wait for the game on Sunday. And so there, there is this misperception that somehow happiness is found through the satisfaction of the hunger, which is having this game on Sunday. And of course the game is going to be enjoyable, but the, the, the great sadness is that I wait sometimes the whole week to be happy. <laughs> Fortunately, these wisdom teachings, these teachings of the Buddha, remind us, as one teacher put it, Nothing can make you happier than you are fundamentally. That all search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. That the only happiness worth the name, this is from Sri Nisargadatta, he says the only happiness worth the name is the natural happiness of conscious being, of being, of amness. It's just to bring back the theme that we began at the beginning of the retreat. that we need not lift out of this instant to find relief. The same teacher, Nisargadatta, said that our, our flight from, from pain, this amazing flight from pain and search for pleasure, he says this is born out of a love for ourselves. We do it because we love ourselves. He says, make love of yourself perfect. Give yourself infinity, which is basically this eternal now. Don't wait to be what you are. We've overshot the present so much. <laughs> We've overshot this moment so much that we don't have a lot of confidence. You can tell me if you think I'm wrong. Don't believe me, just see whether it's true or not. We don't have a lot of confidence that if I really only, if I really just take care of the present, that the future will take care of itself. There's not a lot of faith and confidence in that notion. But the strange thing is, if we don't, if we don't develop this faith and this confidence in this present moment, we are endlessly wandering in the cycle of, of searching as Noshil Kempo Rinpoche puts it, he says, rest in natural great peace. This exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought, like the relentless fury of the pounding waves in the infinite ocean of samsara. Samsara means this endless wandering. It's infinite. The, the monk Ryokan said, the Buddha is your mind. Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. 
If you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? But fortunately, all of us has, have come on retreat. Given, a, given ourselves and all the beings who have to live with us and the beings beyond that, a great gift. A gift of a deeper silence and quiet, of whatever wisdom and understanding arose. The gift of tasting this now. It's a little scary at first, isn't it? What happens when we taste now? There's a, we, it's kind of a, an acknowledgement that we don't exactly know what's going to happen next. Anna was speaking about entering the unknown last night. We really don't know what's going to happen, even the next instant. And initially, that's a little scary. Then it gets a little exciting. Things get a little vivid. Awake in that not knowing. Ajahn Sumedho said that we generally don't want to stop and feel the moment as it is. We somehow think that there's that if we open up the floodgates of nowness, that there'll be some ogre lurking way down deep inside, waiting for an unguarded moment to drive us permanently insane. <laughs> So again, we, we go out of ourselves in search. We go, our mind moves. It gets busy. We need to have compassion for that. We're not used to it. We don't have the faith and confidence. But slowly, slowly it develops. I've seen in, in my conversations with many of you how, how that fear, that resistance has melted away into a real taste of peace and contentment in moments at least. And at times that sense of having entered the flow of life, just allowing it to unfold. So we've sat together about um, seven days. I've lost count. I did know what day New Year's was. But I find it so fascinating. I love just reviewing this whole process of what happens. You know, we've come here and we've sat down. That interest in awakening, that interest in learning the, the life and the nature of here and now, the nature of our minds, the nature of our bodies, to find that relief that we're looking for, sit down and give in this simple instruction. Just attend to the moment's experience. Feel the texture of life. And that basically real-time experience. And what happens? This incredible, magical mystery tour occurs. This waterfall of thoughts and images, sights and sounds and smells and tastes. Our senses get purified. We start to see more acutely. Hear, smell, taste, everything comes alive. Sometimes, we, and we get really sensitive here. Many people described feeling extraordinarily sensitive, as though they had no skin like the sounds would just penetrate. All of this happens quite naturally. It's magical. It's awesome. It's, of course we don't always look at it that way, but that amazing array of thoughts and images, the thousands of them that come every day. Some say that we have something in the neighborhood of 70,000 thoughts a day. Who knows whether that's true. <laughs> but that 90% are repeats from the day before. <laughs> and it's amazing that capacity for these thoughts 
when we begin to inhabit them, how they can just frighten us and excite us. And then all of a sudden the gong goes off and you realize, whoa, I wasn't really in a fight with a, a tiger or I wasn't really battling it out with my mother or my father or whoever. I was just thinking, wow. It is amazing. And then just to watch very carefully the process how, of how we recreate ourselves in each moment. Again, we're sitting here. There's just the openness, the vigilance of the moment, and up comes this little thought. I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> or I'm not doing very well. I call it the how am I doing story. You know, we've talked a lot about stories on this retreat. But it's fascinating how the story, how we can speak so generally that the story for many of us, and I see that this is, that it's directly related to how much of the, how frustrated our search has been in the fleeting experiences of life, how frustrating it's been to find anything substantial and, and final in that, that we, that our refrain in our mind is one of, of insufficiency and dissatisfaction. Basically says, I'm not enough. And that story just, it just ex expands and proliferates into a real complex of a sense of meanness of I-ness, of mindness. This is the creative power of the mind, it, to just generate this sense of someone and to think of the past and the future and to, and to create the sense that it, this is really real. How this happens, who knows, but it happens. Another aspect that begins to reveal itself on the retreat, perhaps, besides noticing the way this sense of self is created moment after moment, how literally we take birth in a thought and then have to kind of live the life of that thought and go through that struggle with whoever we're, we're in struggle with, whether it was in the past or our imagined conflict or a resolution that we're going to engage in when we leave the retreat. How many of those have you had? How many replays have you had from your past life? But it's as though we have to literally end, live a lifetime. And then that lifetime ends. And then maybe the sun shines through the window, or there's a sound. And then again we incarnate. So if you have any doubt about this whole process of birth and death, you just experienced it over and over again. You don't even have to think of it as just this body being born and dying. It's happening every instant. And we can even see it microscopically, the way the pain, fleeting, arising and passing, arising and passing and moving, and each one a little birth and a death, incessantly changing. But yet, in our, in our in a sense, um, without precise focus, all those little incarnations somehow get thrown into one category, that they all, they're all me, and they're all mine, and they describe me, and, and they describe mine. And so we, in that whole complex of ideas, we create the sense of somebody. I don't want to spend too much time on this right now. I want to move on to another capacity that I think is even just as miraculous and perhaps is the, is the, um, the heart of what is revealed to us that brings relief in our practice. And it's not just the capacity for our hearts, our minds, to register what it is that's arising in our minds and to be able to know the, a sight, a sound, and smell, and taste. This sense experience, nobody could ever explain how it's possible to see or to hear, smell or to taste. It's, it's just one of those things that puts me in one of those moods, like, whoa! 
how the hair grows, how the teeth come out, how we grow from infancy, how, how we're even born, and who or what were we before we were born, before we were, we were even an idea. beyond the reflections, beyond the capacity to register so clearly what it, what it is that arises in our minds, especially as we quiet down and our, that mirror-like quality starts reflecting things much more precisely, faithfully. Besides that, it's, that, it's the very capacity, it's the very nature of awareness that's even more extraordinary. And a part of it is that it can actually investigate itself. It can explore its own nature. Do you have any sense of what I'm talking about? Awareness can explore its own nature. So I want us to do a little exercise that uh, where we explore this awareness of ours. And you know, you can just start by one of the ways of getting in touch with awareness, if, if you don't know what, what are we referring to, you know, just notice, the, notice that which hears, or just notice the sound first. And then notice your body sitting. Notice your contact of your rear end on the cushion, or your hands touching. Notice the sound again. And then simply notice what it is that's noticing that. Turning the mind on what it is that's registering. You can do this with your eyes open. Just sense for a moment this what we call awareness, this registering capacity. Let yourself simply be here, aware, awake. Doesn't take much effort, does it? In fact, don't try at all. Just see what's there when you stop trying. So as you sense this awareness, does it have any limit? Where are the limits? Does it have any height or depth? Does it have any walls around it? Is it, is it in any way cornered or bound, or is it, or is it free, this awareness? Does it have a a beginning or an end, this awareness? Just sense it right now. Have the sense that awareness just is. Dujam Rinpoche put it this way. He says, when past thoughts have ceased and future thoughts have not yet arisen, in the interval, is there not a perception of nowness? A virgin, pristine, clear, awake, bare freshness, which is never changed even by a hair. Ho, this is awareness itself. So as you rest in this awareness, in this interval between thoughts of the past or the future. Sense, is there anything lacking? Are you lacking anything? Do you need anything? this awareness.
Is anything missing? We didn't create anything just now. Where's your suffering if you don't refer to your memory or your plans? Simply aware. Now again, we didn't create anything. All we did for a moment is just remove, just let fall away that story that we tell ourselves every day and then take to be true, take to be who we really are. Derek Walcott, I think, referred to this recognition in his poem, Love After Love. Again, resting in this awareness says, the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelves, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Rilke put it this way. Ah, not to be cut off, not through the slightest partition, shut out of, from the law of the stars. The inner, what is it, if not intensified sky, hurled through with birds and deep with the winds of homecoming. Just rest in that open awareness. So meditation practice, mindfulness itself, is the dehypnotizing, the dehypnotizing of this habit, not the habit of thinking. Thinking is the most natural part of life. It's the miraculous part of life. But it's the hypnotic inhabiting of our thoughts, incarnating in our thoughts. So mindfulness returns us again and again to this natural, fresh awareness. Jocelyn King, who was this great yogi who's practicing in Burma, said, I don't understand why people prefer the quicksand of somethingness instead of the firm ground of emptiness. So just sense that, may not be firm, but sense the, <laughs> the ground without trying, without trying. We tend not to be as interested in this noticing. We tend to be much more captivated with what it is that we notice. Isn't it true? It's endlessly fascinating. And it's no wonder that we, that we, we busy ourselves with it. It's 
filled with pleasure and pain and you know it's like going to the movies it's exciting anybody who asked you wouldn't you say that this is one of the best shows in town just sitting with yourself it's true but unfortunately the habit of of living in our thoughts as you probably noticed is you know when they're pleasant they're great but it can be really torturous. And that, that feeling of not being enough and then all the strategizing that needs to take place in order to, you know, to fix ourselves. I called it the other night the me project. It's really tiring. And then, the, and then all the ideas that we get because, they're, because of being taught that you have to adopt a, you have to get somewhere other than where you are you know, even your meditation has to get somewhere else. Many people came in with experiences that were revealing themselves on retreat, deep tensions, contractions, and they had very clear associations with memories and experiences from the past, childhood, traumas. But it wasn't enough just to experience them as they were. There was a belief. It's that same thing as belief that the football game is going to give me that sense of relief. The belief, I cannot be free until this contraction lets go. I know what it is now, and now i got to work on it. We laugh because we recognize ourselves. But mindfulness does not, is not a strategy. It just registers. It comprehends what's happening. And I think the more you do it, the more you appreciate that that in itself is the healing. That it has very little to do with the contractions and the pains in our back or our neck and the memories that arise. It has very little to do with what's happening. It has everything to do with how that is met, how it's related to. We've said this over and over, but it's so easy to forget. Because if, I think if there's one tune that plays more than any other in our minds, at least I'll tell you, it's true for me, is what I call the project mentality. It's really hard, at least at first, just to be with things. So mindfulness has this purifying, has this relaxing quality this letting go quality. doesn't mean we stop having pain, doesn't mean we stop having contractions, doesn't mean we stop having memories, but we begin to meet and relate to our experience with much more allowing. And in that allowing, there's freedom. Then our sense of well-being is not dependent on whether that contraction goes away. If my sense of well-being depends on a contraction going away, I end up waiting again. I'm happy when it's gone, unhappy when it's there. This is samsara. So we get tired of needing things to be different. We get tired of our our neediness, tired of our big issue. Isn't it exhausting having a big issue? <laughs> who decided? Who decided it was the big issue? <laughs> but it's 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 exhausting. We get tired, and you understand uh, what's this um, Wei Wu Wei's poem where he says. Why are you so unhappy? Because you get, begin to see in, in this pursuit, there is again this preoccupation with me, with I. And it's basically imaginary, as you just witnessed yourself in that gap between your thoughts of the past and the future. What were you then? And what happened to, what happened to your, your me project? In that instant of openness, of awareness. Anyway, Wei Wu Wei says, why are you so unhappy? 
says, because 99.9% .9 of everything you do and think is for yourself. And there is none. <laughs> this sense of, of, this, of the somebody and the, the project mentality the, is it bounds our mind in time. And unfortunately, time is, time is always running out. We don't have enough time. Or there's a sense that there's a sense that there really is a future. And we, it's so easy to forget that the future is just a thought in the present. And then, of course, if there's a future, then there's a past. And we really believe that's there, too. So we begin to live more and more in, this, in these ideas of ourselves. Fortunately, we wake up. The, the bell rings, either the bell of a pain that calls us back to the present moment, the bell of lunch bell, the bell of a sound, a sight. But at a certain point in this drama, and I know it's always it's felt like a real drama, like this this great film that I couldn't wait to see what happened. Get me out of here. <laughs> but in this profound drama, there's a certain point where the, the one that we imagine ourselves to be makes the decision, I want to be free. And so, so, we, so we begin to activate that, that one-pointed search. And of course, we then start paying close attention to our experience. And we begin to see very precisely, not we start to wake up a little bit out of our, out of our dreams, begin to live a little bit more, we can call it real time, but as Gill called it three-dimensional, you know, the life of the senses and that, taking in everything. Begin to see very carefully in looking for the relief that to be free, we begin to experience the body more acutely, more intimately, moods more intimately, thoughts more intimately. We begin to see that it is in this process of endless change. And we look for ourselves. We look for, okay, I'm, I've got to be somewhere in here. Did that happen to you during the retreat? You start seeing everything moving, and you go, where am I? What am I? So we begin to ask this deep question. If I'm not, if I can't find me in the body, and it's ever-changing, in the moods, and the mind, then who or what am I? This is a question that the Buddha asked. Who is doing all this meditation? Who's the, what's the meditator? I can say from my own experience that when the meditators found, you found what you've been looking for. And with the cessation, with the falling away of this search, All ideas of bondage, of being stuck, and all ideas of freedom fall away. And you bet you wonder what remains. Kala Rinpoche suggests that what remains is this ever-present openness, spaciousness, and clarity. Ever-accessible is this capacity to register, to know what's happening, to be mindful. 
Kala Rinpoche so beautifully put it like this. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will realize that you're nothing. And being nothing, you're everything. Sri Nisargadatta put it a little bit more romantically. He says, Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between the two, my life flows. So as we relax into this openness, get used to it. And really, I say get used to it is because, as you may have noticed before, it's not something we create. Awareness, mindfulness. It's something we return to by letting go, by non-clinging, by simply letting the light of awareness shine as it will. Ajahn Chah said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, all struggles with the world will end. I'd like to close with a couple poems. Since this is my the last night, I, I want to indulge myself a little bit and share a few of my favorite, favorite things. <laughs> well, before I do that, I have to share a, the secret teaching of Jessica who's the, a kindergartner at the Marin Country Day School. She says, I felt pretty good about kindergarten. One important thing that I learned this year is that some people always want to be first. And then it doesn't matter if you're first or not because there'll always be space for you. <laughs> Exercise time is learning how to control and handle our energy. It calms us down when we're all crazy. <laughs> I like it because it makes me feel good and centered. Centered is to be still and listen to the teacher. My, <laughs> my advice to new kindergartners, it's not scary and it will work out. So on a more serious note, I'd like to share uh, a very frequently read passage from a a kind of ecstatic song of realization from a teacher named Gendon Rinpoche, which is called Free and Easy. He says, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to let the, simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing and manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, It is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They're like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, 
inviting, comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own heart. Nothing to do or to undo. Nothing to force. Nothing to want. And nothing missing. Emaho, marvelous. Everything happens by itself. have a dog and my dog has been sick lately and I feel terrible about my dog being sick but uh, I want to honor my dog tonight because he's a great teacher does great eye contact as I said uh, by reading this poem by a fellow named Mark Doty to close called Golden Retrievals fetch Balls and sticks capture my attention seconds at a time. Catch? I don't think so. Bunny, tumbling leaf, a squirrel who's, oh joy, actually scared. <laughs> Sniff the wind, then I'm off again. Muck, pond, ditch, residue of any th thrillingly dead thing. <laughs> and you, either you're sunk in the past, half our walk, thinking of what you never can bring back, or else you're off in some fog concerning tomorrow. Is that what you call it? My work, to unsnare time's warp and woof, retrieving my haze-headed friend, you, this shining bark, a Zen master's bronzy gong, calls you here, entirely, now, bow wow, Bow wow, bow wow. <laughs> so let's sit quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.